The reading today is from Acts 28, it's 23 through 31. So a time was set, and on that day a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. So I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. Thank you, Kayleen. Good morning again. And if you don't know, we've been reading this book called Immerse, a Messiah. Uh, if you want one, this is your kind of last Sunday to get them or at least talk to an usher or a greeter about like, hey, I want one. I don't have $5 or like, I want one and I haven't picked up my family copy yet, so uh, you can get it free. But we're going to send the last ones back. So we do need you to Take a look at that. And just so you know, like speaking through this series is one of the most challenging pieces for me because number one, we're covering a lot of reading material. But number two, um, I'm coming into kind of each Sunday believing that you've read as well. So sort of we're coming to the middle of the party rather than I'm serving up some appetizers for, for us to eat from and then for you to continue to talk about in your small groups or your family. So um, you've done some reading. We're going to talk about it. And then over the next week, if you're in a group, then you can also go into it in the group. So just a lot going on, if I'm really honest, but really great things. I think we have either, I, I think we have the most small groups that we've had, or at least that we've ever had, um, going. So if you want to find a group, we would love to help you do that. Now, into week two of this series and um, story. Remember, we're looking at knowing the story being able to find ourselves in the story and being able to share the story. And so this second week is in the book of Acts. There's a little bit of Thessalonians that we start. And as we think about Acts, remember Acts starts with um, Luke reminding us, Luke wrote Acts and he reminds us, in my first book, Theophilus, One Who Loves God, I, be, I be told you about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up into heaven. And so Acts is this continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's been said that the true greatness of a leader is measured by looking at the vitality or the health of an organization or company or division or team six months after that leader leaves. 
I think you can like look at the company Apple and realize like Steve Jobs must have been a pretty great leader if the vitality of the organization is still good years after. Now Jesus, probably a little greater than Steve Jobs, but I would say arguably the greatest leader of all time. And within his team of 12, consider that one leader, one of his team denied the leader and the claims he made. The, another um, doubt, well, doubted those claims, another denied the leader, and another betrayed the leader. A couple others, um, instead of imitating his model of servant leadership, they actually attempted to take the top two positions right under their leader. And then after Jesus leaves, if you read the rest of the story, we hear almost nothing from over half of those remaining 11 disciples or apostles. So when you think about that and, and think about what has come since then, Jesus Christ Church, it's far from perfect, but it's made up of broken people who are the delivery system for hope to the entire world. That was Jesus' first best and only plan. It's you guys and girls, men and women. So think about it. How did it survive all this history and thrive through the centuries? I mean, how did the message of a resurrected Jewish man who never held a political or religious office ever escape the first century of, the, of time? Think about it. The jealous Jewish backlash for this person, this, this little division of their religion, or even the powerful Roman Empire that was very anti, at least Christianity, or AD 70, you probably didn't you know, study this a lot, but Rome came in and completely destroyed the Jewish temple in AD 70 and forced all the Jews out of Israel, Jerusalem, the land that they came from. How, how did they even make it through that? And this group of uneducated men and women who believed that their Jewish teacher was actually the promised Messiah was and became this worldwide movement that still exists 2,000 years later. I mean, that's a lot of obstacles. And yet, barrier after barrier was broken down. It defied logic, it defied human error, it defied lack of resources, so much so that now one-third, over one-third of the world professes faith in Christ on every continent. Well, maybe not Antarctica, but, you know, I, the odds are really small there. Not only that, if you think about and look through history, nearly all the first hospitals, first universities, first orphanages, first relief centers, all started by believers in Jesus Christ. So we're going to just look at these barriers that I think show up in the story of Acts. And not just to look at them for a historical sake or a classroom sake, but to consider what do these barriers and how they overcome them, what do they speak to us? How can they help us overcome barriers personally and communally as Christ's church today? So that's where we're going, and we're going to look at two sets of barriers. There's some inner barriers, these things that are inside of us, and then we're going to look at these outer barriers, the things that we see, experience, and the church experienced, and how they overcome them in 
and again, what that might speak to us. So just as we look at this, you, you might want to follow along in the book, but the book of Acts starts by telling us Jesus' team of 12 apostles, which are actually now 11, they don't quite understand what's happening. Uh, I am starting from page 61. And it says that one day, well, uh, or first of all, it says during the 40 days that Jesus, after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked about the kingdom of God. And one day he was eating with them Remember, Jesus can, um, he suddenly appears in rooms and then disappears, but then like asks people to touch him. He eats food. So he has this crazy supernatural body where he's there, but sometimes he's not there. One day while he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the father sends you the gift I promised as I told you before, John baptized with water, but just in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So then the apostles were with Jesus. They kept asking, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Lord, is now the time? That's what they're asking. This is, I think, a barrier about misconceptions. It's something that we have inside of us when we think something should go a certain way or we think something should work in in our lives in a certain way. And they're saying, Lord, is it time for you to restore this kingdom, Israel, to become this great nation again? Like the resurrection, you came back, so now Israel is going to be top dog in the world, right? And Jesus says, no. No, it's not about that kingdom being restored. It's about my kingdom. He doesn't say it quite like that, but if you think about for the kingdom of Israel to be restored, they would need something. Actually, they would need a someone. If you have a kingdom, what do you need? Anybody can play. A king or queen. We want to, you know, there are kingdoms ruled by queens. So, yeah, a king. But the problem is, if they have this restored kingdom of Israel, then they think they need a king and Jesus isn't ready to sit on that throne yet. For the kingdom of Israel to truly be restored in a way that the whole world can come in, Jesus needs to be that king. And the world isn't ready to accept him as king as he's already found out. It's really a question of, do I want to submit to Jesus as my king and follow and contribute to his kingdom or do I want to follow my own agenda? I mean, that's ultimately what the resurrection says to us, which we'll get to in a moment, but who's in charge of my life? It's not about the nationalistic hope of Israel or the personal dreams. It's about joining with Jesus to contribute to God's kingdom, to see more people in more places experience salvation, which is a fancy word for healing and hope in Jesus Christ. Do I want to be a part of that or do I want to kind of do my own thing? And so then it goes on and we see this barrier. I, I think it's this barrier of mistakes because the story goes on and, and Jesus leaves and there's only 11 apostles 
And I think Jesus could have easily replaced Judas. Like, hey, 11 out of 12 ain't bad, so let's just figure out who this next person is going to be. Do we need to have 12? Well, if it's really the fulfillment of Israel, then Israel had 12 tribes, and so we need to have 12 to kind of represent that Jesus fulfilled this. So yeah, we need this other person, but, but Jesus didn't do it. He didn't fulfill it. Jesus instead says, wait for this promise from the Father that will give you power for mission. Wait for this promise from the Father for power for mission. And then all of a sudden you see this guy, Peter, stand up. Acts 1.15. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, which really is brothers and sisters. There were women in the room too. The scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas who guided those to arrest Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in our ministry. But we got to just pause for a moment because Peter was the disciple that was quick to act and quicker to speak. He was the guy who was the first to declare that Jesus was the Messiah, this person sent by God, but he was also the one to tell Jesus that, no, you don't really have to die, Jesus. I mean, Peter has tried to lead before, and he's failed many, many times. Peter probably doesn't feel like he's the one who's supposed to stand up, and yet... Jesus has also said to him over and over, I will build my church on this claim and on you. So all of a sudden we see in the story, Peter stand up and use the, the scriptures, the Bible, to, and, and prayer to guide them and lead them. He says, this is what was written in the book of Psalms, where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. And it also says, let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up to heaven from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus resurrection. See, even with all Peter's mess-ups and mistakes, he leads this community with prayer and with God's word to search for hints or clues to find a way forward. God doesn't always work in the same way, but, but he's, got, he's given us the scriptures. Friends, remember when he went through over and over about how the Messiah must suffer and die. We looked through the old prophets. We looked through the Psalms. There has got to be something here that explains what to do with where we're at. That's how I imagine it went. And here's the crazy part. Like, okay, these two people that they choose from. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, which ironically means the gift of God. But then they pray and they pick one and then we never hear from either one of them again. So some have speculated that this replacement is a mistake. Like that they messed up in this. That maybe if they would have just waited for the Holy Spirit, maybe, for example, Paul was the official next apostle 
that replaced him. We hear a lot about Paul later, but I don't think we can actually figure out the answer, but I think what we can learn in this is regardless of if this replacement was a success or a failure or a mistake, God didn't stop working in the situation. He didn't stop using the people that were with him, that were seeking him through prayer, through his word, that were finding a way, who were looking for people who'd been with Jesus, who joined with Jesus, and who wanted to be a witness for Jesus' resurrection. Now, think about that word, witness, for Jesus' resurrection. Like, I think a lot of us are like, okay, yeah, I want to be with Jesus. Okay, I'll join with Jesus. You know, you want me to serve somewhere? I'll serve somewhere. You want me to do something kind for someone? Oh, I'll do that. Oh, you want me to witness? I don't know if I want to do that. Now, if you're an English nerd, which I pretend to be, but, oh, you want me to witness? We actually are taking that and saying it's a verb. Like, ah, oh, I don't want to go do that. Well, that's actually not what he says. It's not about performance. It's about identity. Be a witness. Jesus is talking to us and talking to them about their identity, not how they perform. These inner barriers actually get us all to focus on performance instead of identity. The third one is miscommunication. All right, I needed to kind of stretch it to find, you know, an M because it was mistakes and misconceptions, so miscommunication. But if you think about it, like what we see in the next part of the story is the Holy Spirit comes down on this day of Pentecost and all the believers are there and there's flaming tongues. It's kind of crazy. The, the winds shake. There's a violent windstorm and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them ability. But there's people from all over the world that have come to this festival, they, they, they are Jewish by faith. They might have a dif- different ethnicity or live in a different culture, but they are Jews by faith and by family. And so they're all back in town for this big festival. Some of them have stayed since Passover, which ironically was about the time Jesus was crucified. But since this is really only, gosh, six or seven weeks later, they're like, oh, you know, it's too much work to drive home because there's no Southwest and we can't drive. We've got to take a donkey. So, you know, we're going to just hang out here. And all of a sudden, these crazy people who aren't in the temple, they're in this upper room. They're not even in the place that God is supposed to be present. They're in some random other place. And that there's this wind and shaking and things like fire and craziness happening. And all these people come and they're like, wait, I can understand them. That's why I think it's miscommunication. Now, the day of Pentecost is certainly more than communication. But they have this understanding going on and Peter becomes a witness. That's his identity. So he just gets up and talks about what he's seen and heard. He says, what you're witnessing today isn't crazy. The prophets predicted this long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die. And that happened right outside this city two months ago or less than two months ago. Jesus was that person. He lived among us. He was crucified by the Romans and the Jewish leaders. He died for our sin. 
and for the sins of the world, even though he was innocent. And God declared him right with God when he raised him from the dead three days later. And we are eyewitnesses of these things. I imagine him standing up with either the 12 or the 120 and saying, we're witnesses of that. Some of you were here too. We've seen him risen or resurrected from the dead. And when Peter finished speaking, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus. And a few days later, maybe a week later, the Holy Spirit performs a miracle through Peter and John. And then another 2,000, they say men, accepted this belief that Jesus was the resurrected Savior and the promised Messiah for all the Jewish people and maybe more. And so 5,000 men plus women and children all say yes to Jesus, put their hope in this Savior. Crazy, beautiful, but they're all speaking other languages. How in the world are we going to let them know what they need to know? But that's not our job. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to guide them into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to make those connections and make that communication. And when I sit back and think about, oh, it's my identity, it's not my performance, then something changes in me. So since these are inner barriers that we're talking about right now, I'll talk about my inner barriers. I know I'm a little unique, but I'm not like unicorn special. So maybe this is true for you guys. But like when I'm overly concerned about my performance or what others think of me, and then, then I'm tentative with my words, I don't clearly communicate, I don't say what I want or what I need or what I want to see happen. But when my identity is centered in Christ, when my identity is being led by the Spirit, my whole being, then I have this ability to paint pictures with words. Like I can be creative and concise. I can invite others in and invite them to paint with me. I can disagree with someone and still have peace in the midst of that conflict because I'm trusting that the spirit is at work in them and in me. And I don't think that's just true for me. That's what we see over and over and over in the story when people push past their inner barriers, they're actually able to be with God, to focus on that identity and who they're representing rather than how they're performing. Just think about your own life. And when you, even just when you try to come to God in relationship, do you start with your performance? I mean, no offense to people who were raised Catholic, but if you were raised Catholic, I think you were taught that you went to confession and you kind of listed out the things that you did wrong. Am I, am I right? Simplifying it, I know, but again, that's focusing on our performance. It was a radical, and I wasn't raised Catholic, but it was this radical thing when someone discipled me and talked about how I could come to God in prayer by declaring my identity, not in an arrogant way, but in this way that God speaks to me. God, I thank you that you created me, that you love me, that you know me, that you think good thoughts about me. God, that you gave your son so that, so that all of us, but including me, could have life with you. 
I thank you that you gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to speak to us and to guide us. Remind me who I am. When I do that, and when I'm led by the Spirit, to me, everything changes. And when Jesus is talking to them, he says, wait for this promise from the Father that will give you power for mission. I always looked at that as, ha power for mission. This whole book is about mission. It's about going out from Jerusalem, going all over the world. There's this job to do, people. Me. But no. I mean, yes, it's, it is power for mission, but it's a promise from the Father. That is not just about some impersonal force to help us accomplish a task. That is about a promise in the context of relationship. This is the Holy Spirit, who's not an it, but a he, part of the divine person of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to live inside of us, to lead us, to help us experience God. And God isn't sitting around going, well, I'll do that, I'll love you, if you do this for me. I think God is saying, regardless of if you ever do a task for me, I love you. I want my spirit inside of you so you experience me, so you live in me. So if this is something that maybe is a struggle for you, the question would be, um, do I think being a witness is about identity or about performance? And when I come to God in, in my day or my week or my season, how do I come? Do I come with my list of how I've done my performance or do I come reminded of my identity? See, this is what God wants us to experience. And really, the reason we spend so much time on these inner barriers is because I think the outer barriers can easily flow if we get the inner barriers figured out. Because God does love you. He has created you. Even if you don't Accept him, believe in him. He still loves you, wants to be in relationship with you. But this, it's not just this solo thing, this individual thing. It's not like God died for me, God loves me. I mean, it's true, but it's not the only thing. God loves each of us so much that he wants us to remind others or invite others or pursue others that God created them and loves them and wants to know them. Because the rest of the book is about the thems. The whole rest of the book is about the them. And, and then what happens when we figure that out is there are these outer problems that happen. There's, you know, in Acts 6, there's, you know, some Greek-speaking widows who are getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food and they have to figure out that problem. And the leaders are like, well... Is this the problem we're supposed to focus on? Is this the mission you have for us? Uh, well, it's important, but it's not. So we're going to solve the problem by actually identifying people and they'll figure out a process. So they solve the problem without actually fixing the problem. And it says that the church was overjoyed about it. Man, we could spend some time on that, but we won't. So 
Then you continue on with this and continue to invite others to experience God. And all of a sudden, it, it's not just, there's not just going to be problems. There's going to be persecution. Because this idea of the resurrection is offensive. Not just the scientific part of it, that someone would rise from the dead, but the sociological, spiritual, and relational part of it. If someone can rise from the dead, then there can be light after darkness. Then there can be hope after disaster. Then there can be peace after conflict. Then the whole world's turned upside down, and I just don't know if I can handle that. That means I have to submit my life to someone greater than myself. There will be persecution. And all the rest of the story of Acts, it's sprinkled throughout. It's just a reality of the situation. We have experienced an anomaly in America that our brothers and sisters who love Jesus around the world have not had. And we're getting just glimpses and sprinkles of persecution. But history shows that it's all been in the story. And so what do they do in the midst of that? Well, it's in Acts 8, after there's this intimidation and Peter and John get beaten, Stephen gets stoned, then it says this great wave of persecution broke out that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So before the persecution, they're just hanging out in Jerusalem. And it's after the persecution that they actually go out. It's like they got really comfortable in Jerusalem because that's our tendency. We stay in this place of comfort rather than move out, even when our identity is right. But what gives me hope in the midst of this is that if they were able to push past the pain, push past the persecution, push, push past the perceived rejection, that maybe I can too. Because the people that went out were not the apostles. That's like the A-team. That's like the varsity, the Division One. I was a Division Two swimmer. My nickname was JV in high school until I was a senior because I spent so much time on the JV. I liked second string and the bench, and that's the people that get moved out. Philip is one of the people who figure out the food distribution. He goes out and shares his faith. Stephen is one who did the food distribution. He shares his faith over and over and over in the rest of the book. It's about the second string people, the ordinary people who are sharing their faith. If they could do it. It helps me to realize that we can as well. And it was just this normal, natural thing. Wherever they went, they talked about Jesus. And then when that happened, the more, further they went, the more they ran into new people. The new people that Jesus, or the Holy Spirit introduces us to, it's pretty fascinating. Oh, I wish we could spend all day, but we're not. Don't worry. We're just about done. The new people that the Holy Spirit introduces us to is strategic and fascinating. When they get sent out, one of the first stories is Peter on his way to Africa. Okay, new continent. One of the first people, the, not one of, the first person that 
Philip meets on his way to Africa is a different race, wealthy, gender-marginalized person who's a politician from Africa. Okay, he's a eunuch, but I think gender-marginalized works better. And that person becomes a believer in Jesus. Then we take this religious zealot, hater person, that's the next story, and he becomes a believer in Jesus, the, people, the very people he's trying to wipe out. That's a story in itself. And then the next story is about Peter bringing the faith to this Italian, like, Roman officer who doesn't look Jewish, act Jewish, or eat Jewish, and yet he becomes a believer in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit picks two people from this diverse church named Barnabas and Saul to send them throughout the world, taking this beyond because there's new people that need to know and they're willing to go. And they cross into, from the Middle East, they cross into Eastern Asia, they go from Eastern Asia, they cross into Europe. I've never really been able to fathom that until I started actually looking at the globe and realizing that Turkey, I know I'm going to nerd out in geography now for a second, but Turkey is like this bridge continent between Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. And what I think is just fascinating about what Luke includes is in Acts 16, he describes how they cross the sea and they go into this region called Macedonia, but that's Europe. And the first person that they meet in Europe who believes in Jesus, Acts 16, uh, I think it's 13, they went on the Sabbath outside the city to a riverbank to the place of prayer. Why? Because there's no Jewish synagogue. There's not enough Jews here to have a church. So these people just are spiritual. They meet for prayer. And the person they meet is a wealthy businesswoman. A wealthy businesswoman. The first convert to Christianity in Europe is a woman. Do you see what the Holy Spirit is telling us? That this is not about one elite group, whether it's race or whether it's gender or whether it's class. This is about a message of resurrection and hope for the whole world. That you and I, if we believe in Jesus, are invited to be a part of. So the band's going to come up, Matt Allender's going to come up and um, just share a couple minutes um, because Matt's actually experienced this. So I want to close our time with um, hearing a little bit of Matt's story because Matt, you have uh, a friend who, you know, is a little different than you, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, what's? Furkan. Furkan. Okay. Furkan is Muslim, correct? Yep. So did you just decide one day, like, I need a friend who's Muslim? <laughs> uh, no, I met Furkan at work. He started a few years ago. Uh, and honestly, I started talking to him because I wanted to get to know him because he grew up in Kar- Karachi, Pakistan, which is, you know, not rural Minnesota. Um, where you grew up? Yeah, yeah, where I grew up. Way different. And I just wanted to really get to know him. It was so it started with you just being kind of interested in him. Yeah, and we so. found that even though he grew up on the literal other side of the planet, we had a lot of common interests. Uh, found that I wanted to learn how to play racquetball. He apparently is really good at racquetball, so we'd play that. And it, we ended up spending a lot of lunch times together talking, 
Uh, we're nerdy because I'm a programmer and we'd go play some a phone game kind of like Pokemon Go together and just spend a lot of time talking. And then finally it evolved into having family meals together. So he got married a couple years ago and we started just, we'd host, he'd come over and we'd eat with them and then they'd host and we'd go over there. So it just kind of evolved into a really cool friendship. That's awesome. You, you know, it, you might go, oh, wait, how, how do I become friends with someone? Because they teach this in kindergarten. They do. <laughs> and and you, you keep doing it in elementary school and in high school and, and often in college, but everybody is kind of like way monocentric in college, you know, same place, age, time, space. And then all of a sudden we forget the further we get from those years how to be friends. And so Matt didn't be like, whoa, you're Muslim. Uh, do you want to be friends? Because that would have been weird. Yeah. <laughs> he said, hey, I asked him some questions. And then those questions led to common interests uh-huh. and um, learning from each other. And then that led to, oh, doing some of those things together and events together. And then eventually eating with each other's families yep. even. So oftentimes people, if they can figure that part out, will be like, okay, wait. So I got that, but how do I even go into a faith conversation? So how did faith come into that yeah, friendship? So it was already kind of out there. At the time, I had to leave work early at, on Mondays because I was in seminary. And then, if you didn't know, uh, church or mosque is on Friday for Muslims. So at mm-hmm. 1 o'clock, he would leave. So it was already kind of out there that I was a Christian and he was Muslim. Um, and then I had a class in seminary, or we had this class in seminary, where it was talking about religious, like, interreligious dialogue, and I decided to do mine on the Muslim faith. So I went to a mosque, and that led me to, hey, I have a friend who's Muslim. I should ask him questions. And they were very surface-level questions at first of just, like, you know, what's your basic belief? And that evolved into having some, what do you actually believe questions and the Muslim faith believes in Jesus. They view him as a prophet. So then I shared, well, this is what you know, my faith is about Jesus. And since we had already spent time like, you know, hanging out, playing racquetball, I could share those differences without worrying about, well, mm. you say he's a prophet and you don't believe this part about him. I believe that he's God. I believe that he died and was resurrected. I know you're not going to get offended or like, scared. We're already friends, so I can just share that. Wow, that is beautiful. I think when people bring faith into their friendships, they often fall into this trap of like, ooh, I have to make sure I say it all right and come across as offensive. Or they kind of go the other way and they're like, oh, I don't want to say anything wrong. And so then they just completely ignore it. And you, sounds like you went into this really healthy middle place that might have put some tension in you, but my guess is you had to rely on the Holy Spirit in those moments. Yeah, I didn't go into like each conversation with an agenda. I wasn't trying to like in every conversation say the exact thing that would win them over. I, I went to seminary, but I don't feel like I'm always equipped to. I know the exact thing that you need to that I need to say to you to like win you to Christ, and I just took the approach of I'm going to share what I believe. I'm going to share like this is what I've experienced. And then let God do the heavy lifting of, take these words, you know, let mm. them mean what they're going to mean to him, and I'll have faith that God will, you know, build that relationship with them. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I think if you got nothing else from our overview of Acts, I pray that you grab a couple of the things that Matt said, because that is living out 
what Christ is asking us to do and empowering us by his spirit to do. So for people that might be curious, Matt, where do you see the Holy Spirit in you or him or your friendship right now? Uh, right now, we're actually, we have to invite him over now to keep the, do the next family meal. Um, but I'm just going to keep having these conversations, keep letting, like, the more I can share about my belief and the more he sees me living it out, struggling and, you know, turning to God, I think the better chance that it might leave an impact on him and he might open his heart up. Thank you for sharing. What was his name again? Furkan. Furkan. Would you um, stand with me and Matt and the worship team as we just consider what it means to live this out? Uh, Father, I thank you for Matt and for his story and for his um, God willingness to uh, stand up and tell us, but really his willingness to be uh, living as your witness. Not doing witnessing, but just being your beloved son. Speaking about what he has experienced. About the resurrection, about Christ, about peace and grace and truth and forgiveness. And I pray, God, that you would be at work. We know you already are, but that you would be at work even more in Khan's life that even as a Muslim, he would see that Jesus is who he says he is, that he isn't just this prophet, but he is truly the one who came to save all of us. God, we learned last year how to bless others in normal and natural ways, to begin with prayer, to listen with care, to eat together, and serve together and share. I thank you that Matt so simply and, and naturally is living that out with Furkan. I pray that we could pursue diverse relationships, God, to live that out as well, and that it would be, again, this place that comes from within us that your Holy Spirit starts. God, I pray for those of us who are, are still stuck at the inner barriers. No judgment, God, I pray that your spirit would bring a holy healing and maybe a holy conviction if healing is necessary and unknown so that we could see our identity correctly and stop focusing on our performance to live as your people. God, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the leaders for the children, for this church. God, we do want to join with you to transform communities, but not in our own strength, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.